Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to The AI Daily Brief at the link in the description. I encounter people who think that you'll be able to use the metaverse on your smartphone. At which point to me that I have literally no fucking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like, that's the internet. The metaverse is like, everything will be interoperable. Everything will be portable. You'll be able to move assets between every different thing. Why does that make sense? You know, I go into Fortnite and I buy a 15 foot tall yellow banana character with a gun that shoots exploding tomatoes. Cool. I go into Call of Duty. And I'm sneaking through the forest, like crawling through the mud with the other VR, with my other VR special forces guys, except I'm a fuck off great yellow banana shooting. <laughs> like, even if you believe that VR is going to be the universal device and 3 billion people will have one in 10 years time, any prediction you make today about the specific market structure of that and who's going to be in charge and how it will work is going to be wrong. I feel like kind of ambivalent about ChatGPT plugins. Like if this is thing is absolutely fucking amazing and changes the world, how is it that's using a web 1.0 API to talk to a web 1.1 company to answer this question? If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up upstream listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code UPSTREAM. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. Benedict is one of the most important thinkers and analysts in all of technology. Every year, he creates a presentation that talks about where tech is going. In this episode, we discuss exactly that. What is the future of AI, of crypto, of VR slash the metaverse? Where is it all going? Nathan LeBenz from the Cognitive Revolution joins us at the end of this episode. Benedict Evans, welcome to Upstream. Thank you for having me. So Benedict, every year you come out with a presentation at the end of the year where you talk about where, where things are going next. And it's a, it's a must read in the industry. And I'm curious for you to reflect on the presentations the past uh, you know, five years or so and reflect on what you think you saw correct, what you think you predicted, uh, like what, what holds up from prior presentations and where you think you, you perhaps uh, didn't foresee what would happen. Of course, it's impossible to predict everything. But why don't you re reflect on, on that a little bit for us? 
Yeah, every year I do a presentation that says these are the fundamental trends in tech for the next next decade, and then about nine months later I say, no, 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 no. these are the fundamental trends in tech. That's exactly. I don't know. There's a sort of, you know, there's a sort of very peculiar sort of naivety that you sometimes encounter from people in tech that sort of news is just facts, and you try and kind of patiently explain, well, yes, but there are infinite facts, and which facts you choose to convey is an opinion. So you can't have news that's just facts, that's nonsensical. And in the same way, you know, I do this as a presentation and I, what I, and I can't do all of tech, um, partly because that would be 500 slides, partly because there's great chunks of stuff that life is too short and I don't know anything about. And it would take me a year to, know, to understand what everyone in that space knows, like Chinese semiconductors. Partly because, you know, I sort of think about, you know, where is there scope to say something new and interesting and point out some new trend. Partly because I think, well, who's my target audience for this um, that's going to find this useful. And so within that sort of framework, you know, I look for sort of, you know, okay, here, let me, let me give you half an hour of a lot of stuff that's happening in a way of understanding what's going on or some things that are going on. So that's one way of, of looking at it. Another way would be to say the... Um, the place where there's something new and different changes over time. So we spent sort of three or four or five years saying, okay, smartphones have kind of happened now. And so what's the next thing? Is there a next thing? What are the new trends that come after smartphones? Smartphones can completely remake the tech industry. Okay, yeah, but it's happened. It's a kind of classic S-curve model that one S-curve follows another. And there's one way of looking at that, which was to talk about machine learning, and then to talk about VR and AR, which somehow got wrapped up into this kind of ridiculous word metaverse that we can maybe talk about later. And then on the other side, Web3, crypto and Web3 and ideas about what you would do with that. So the one side, kind of a new device on the other side, a new architecture, a new business model, a new framework, maybe kind of a new open source. And um, now in the last sort of six months or so, we've had this sort of second wave of machine learning. And um, that's become the only thing and everything. Um, and it's a lot easier to see that than to see VR or to see crypto. So that's kind of one framing to think about. But the other framing would be sort of meanwhile, the rest of the tech industry and the rest of the broader economy isn't so much working on stuff that's going to happen in five or 10 years time as deploying ideas from five or 10 or 20 years ago. You know, ideas like SaaS and cloud and automation and workflow. And, um, this is this hilarious phrase, digital transformation, and <laughs> which which sounds like a kind of a parody of marketing nonsense, but actually just means like in the 70s, you got a mainframe and in the 90s, you got PCs and now you move to the cloud. And that's kind of a big deal. That's basically what digital transformation means. I mean, like maybe people will buy stuff on the Internet. Maybe people will watch TV on the Internet. You know, so you've got like tech comp enterprise tech companies deploying ideas from 10 years ago and consumer sort of deploying ideas from 20 years ago. It's like that's how long it takes for this stuff to diffuse. So you've got this kind of spread of what are the kind of the ideas for what's going to happen in the future? What's going on right now? What's actually just deployment from ideas of 10 years ago, 20 years ago? How is that changing other industries? So a lot of what I've been talking about in the last year or two is, sort of, okay, how is that changing advertising? How does that change big consumer brands? How does it change TV? And the sort of a thesis within that is most of that has nothing to do with tech. Like I don't think Netflix is a tech company. I don't think Tesla. And there's a big argument, is Tesla a car company or not? But basically the bull argument, the bear argument for Tesla is it's, it's a car company, um, in which case it's got a very different margin structure um, to, to, to the bull case. Um, so you've got these kind of different layers of, um, here's all this stuff happening. 
what within that should I try and talk about that I can say something and it would be useful to an audience? Where is there some point of tension or friction or difference where something meaningful is changing? What is the sort of the fundamental mega trend, if I can use that again, another ridiculous word, as opposed to here are 100 things happening? But above all, kind of what I try and avoid is just saying here are 100 charts. Like, I don't want to do Pinterest for charts. I don't want to do, here's every slide, every, every chart I've seen in the last 18 months. And there are big presentations that do do that. It's basically, here's every stat from the last year. I always try and say, well, there's stories here and there's reasons why I'm showing you this. Just because you mentioned it, why isn't uh, Netflix a, a, a tech company and, and what does that mean or imply? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I often say about my presentation that each slide could be a half hour conversation. <laughs> I think a kind of a basic way to think about Netflix is all the questions that matter for Netflix are TV questions. Like what shows, what right structures, what do you pay the artists? Do movie stars decide they don't want to do TV because it affects, you know, their box office poll? How do you capital, do you, how do you, how do you depreciate the TV shows? Well, you, know, you put them, you capitalize them and depreciate them over how long? Um, what's the right, right mix of content? You know? so I don't know, they're all TV questions. But, but is the idea that they get, that those they get the answers from looking at the data of what people watch. No, that was all bull. That was always bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it was total bullshit. And you know, there's this sort of hilarious story in, in, in I think either Variety or Hollywood Reporter. And there's a point here. And if you want to know what's going on at Variety at, at, at Netflix, read Variety and read Hollywood Reporter. Don't read TechCrunch. Um, <laughs> right. But there's this whole thing on like the people that they'd hired and how well they were doing. And they hired these people because they had those relationships and that person didn't. And you read this whole thing. And the subject here is basically Netflix went to L.A., hired L.A. people at L.A. salaries to have lunch with other L.A. people and buy L.A. stuff from L.A. people. There's no <laughs> technology here. And I'm, I'm being kind of entirely serious that, 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 that I think there's a... There's important phenomena, which is that there are companies which, as Mark Andreessen put it, their software is eats the world companies. So Uber or Airbnb, kind of canonical examples. Uber doesn't sell software to taxi companies. Uber changes what taxis are. Airbnb doesn't sell software to hotel companies. It changes what it is to be a hotel. And it's something that Hilton couldn't do. And it's something that a taxi car company, cab company couldn't do. But what Netflix does, or indeed what, say, Shein is doing, is using the internet as a new channel to enter the market. And this new channel has different characteristics, so it doesn't, you know, um, um, streaming doesn't have time slots, so you don't have a limited number of Saturday nights. And um, Shein doesn't have to put inventory in 2,000 stores the way Zara does, so they can make a product and literally make 50 of them or 25 of them in the entire world and then wait to see who buys it, which Zara, which kind of pioneered fast fashion, obviously can't do. So there's, the channel works differently. But that's kind of like saying that, you know, if Walmart's Supercenter channel works differently from a convenience store. And yes, it does, and all that, therefore it's all there, but it's still a grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of my point about, about there was this sort of moment when everyone in tech said, oh, well, legacy media companies will never be able to do software. Guess what? Um, Disney, Plus, Disney Plus has got as many subscribers as Netflix. Now, yes, some of them are in India and not paying very much. And some of that's at ESPN and so on. But in principle, the, 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 the Disney Plus app is fine. Maybe the, maybe the video compression is 10% worse than Netflix. Guess what? No one really cares. And if Netflix had fifty percent video compression, better video compression, but all they had was net was 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 reruns of Cheers and Friends, no one would care. It's a TV company, you know. It's no different from a satellite TV company. If you were advising either of those companies, would you encourage them to try to become a tech company, or that's just that's not what's needed? Well, so I think like you know, kind of, I'll start arguing against myself. You can kind of get into this very sort of hacky newsy thread about well, what is a TV company? 
and they have this ridiculous argument about what's tech and what's TV. The, my, my, my sort of Occam's razor is, well, what are the questions that matter here? And the questions that matter are all TV industry questions. I think the point for, um, for Netflix is like the software is a commodity. And, you know, that's something that a lot of people in tech would get very upset about. But commodities can be hard. You know, semiconductor, you know, um, um, flat panel screens are a commodity. They're also a very hard commodity, full of like lots of science, but they're still a commodity. And cars are a commodity. Like making a reliable engine that can do 250,000 miles without braking is very difficult, but it's still a commodity. And yes, there's only maybe there's only 10 people that can make that commodity, but it's still a commodity. And the point here is that, that, that for, 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 for streaming TV, Making a great streaming TV app is actually not something that only a software company can do. You can make a, an adequate, you can make one that's good enough because what matters is the Mandalorian. Yeah. If, if Quibi had worked, would you have called that a tech company, like an innovation on the forum? Or is that... It's an, interest, it's an interesting hybrid. I mean, I would see, the, I think the better cap, because it, you know, it's, it's too hard to know the counterfactual kind of there. Um, it was done in a very untech sort of way, you know, spend billions of dollars before <laughs> you've met a customer. Yeah. Um, I would say the counterpoint to um, to Netflix is is both YouTube and TikTok. Yeah. Because, you know, Netflix spends sort of 50 to $20 billion a year commissioning content, which is as much as any of the legacy TV companies. I think Warner and Discovery spend more, that's more, but, that, 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 but that's all. And I would look at that as not like, oh my God, Netflix is such an amazing company. They've broken in. They are able to spend this much. No, it's they have to spend that much. The only way they get the business that they have is by spending what you spend to be a TV company. You have to buy TV shows. And software doesn't have a net. There's no network effect. There's no software doesn't give you a shortcut in the way that software meant that Airbnb didn't have to build lots of hotels and uber didn't have to buy lots of taxi cabs that was a shortcut or you know a way of rooting around or like better whatsapp didn't have to build tele global telecommunications networks they didn't have to build millions of base stations so software let them get around that infrastructure requirement that doesn't apply to netflix if you want to be a tv company you've got to buy a shitload of tv shows yeah youtube's creator payouts are actually they don't disclose the number you can kind of estimate it roughly equivalent to netflix's content payments but that's if they actually have a completely different model. You know, Netflix does not fundamentally have a different model to any other legacy TV company. They may pay people to make TV shows. Whereas YouTube doesn't. YouTube is doing something else. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I'm curious as we, you know, sufferers uh, eat in the world, but some fields eaten less than, than others, like uh, education, healthcare, you know, housing, so, some others that are highly regulated. I'm curious, are, are the, how much are the questions there? technological versus, versus uh, you know, specific to the, those fields and the regulations within those fields? Well, so I think it was Bill Gurley sort of 20 years ago said there's no Moore's law for, for, um, for backhoes, actually for digging machines. I mean, there's, 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 like a, there's a recurring fantasy in tech that you're going to use software to disrupt, to disrupt cellular operators. And cellular operators are infrastructure companies and property companies. Like the tech is actually a pretty small part of the business. Most of the business is guys going up ladders and like climbing onto the roof of buildings and bolting stuff to the roof of buildings and putting big metal antennas up there. Um, there's no software for that. And the um, similar point, you know, for housing, like, yes, you know, the kind of part of, part of Mark Andreessen's sort of software eating the world point was like the first 20 years of, software, of, of the internet is basically information arbitrage. It's providing stuff around the edges of the existing industry. So it's like mortgage price comparisons or it's Yelp and TripAdvisor and so on. One of the ways you could look at something like TripAdvisor or booking is that everything is probably disruptive to someone. 
So online flight booking is massively disruptive to travel agents. Like that whole industry has basically disappeared at this stage. Um, unless, you know, I don't like, like booking a three-week safari in Namibia or something. Um, but the idea that there was a shop you had to go to in order to buy a plane ticket and that they knew what the planes were, like that's completely evaporated. But it didn't really disrupt the airlines. I mean, yes, it kind of changes how their business works because you have this price transparency and liquidity and so on. Um, but, you know, the basic business of an airline is flying, flying airplanes. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody. I want to recommend a couple other shows that we also run. One is Moment of Zen, which I co-host with Dan Romero and Antonio Garcia Martinez. We talk about everything from tech, the history, philosophy. We've also featured Mark Andreessen and Balaji on those podcasts, so I recommend you checking them out. My other show is Cognitive Revolution. It's an AI show that I co-host with Nathan LeBenz. I recommend listening if you want to stay up to date with all things AI. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to 5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes from founders can be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy. It's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering upstream listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash upstream and use code upstream to get your $1,000 credit. And the same thing, for, in fact, actually for, for, for cellular. But smartphones completely disrupted the handset business. They didn't really disrupt the cellular business at all. I mean, for all the pricing structure was changed, here we are 25 years later basically the same companies running basically the same business with basically the same revenue and the same margin structure. You know, Vodafone today is basically the same business it was 20 years ago. Same with Verizon. And so everything is disrupted for somebody at some level, at some level in the stack. And it may change who your suppliers are and it may change what your go-to-market looks like. Looks like. Um, I think one of the interesting things that's sort of happening now in consumer is um, should you go direct to consumer or not? Because if you are L'Oreal or Procter & Gamble, for the last hundred years, you were a B2B business. You sold trucks full of soap and you sold trucks full of makeup um, and, whatever the, and razor blades and whatever the product is. You didn't actually sell products to consumers. And now you kind of have this question, should we be doing that? Should we be selling direct to consumer? Um, what kind of, is that? Because that would be a whole other kind of company. Um, what would that look like? And you know, the answer for some companies is probably no. And obviously, we've had this kind of moment in the last sort of five, 10 years where everybody wants to have a direct consumer relationship, which is, of course, also what you see in TV streaming. And of course, not everybody's going to be able to have that. 
But then you have this argument in TV, okay, what are going to be the direct-to-consumer streaming brands? It's going to be, net in the US, obviously, and it's going to be Netflix plus Disney plus maybe one or two other people, and who will those be? And that's a variety conversation. It's a, it's a TV industry conversation. It's not a tech conversation. Zooming out again, when we go back to your earlier presentations, I'm, I'm curious what has surprised you about what has perhaps taken longer to, uh, to, to happen or, or what has happened sooner. I mean, I, there was this moment in COVID where we thought the world was getting pulled to the future sooner than, than we thought. And perhaps there's been a, a bit of a re reset there. But I'm, I'm curious if you can re reflect on that broader question. We overestimate how quickly stuff will change in the long term and underestimate how quick, how much it will change in, in, the, in the longer term. But one of the aspects of um, the, the kind of takeoff in machine learning right now is that it's sort of sitting on top of, you know, it's just standing on the shoulders of giants. It's sitting on the top of the whole consumer internet, all of the cloud infrastructure, all of the data that's already been kind of created and accumulated. And if you tried to do this 10 years ago, it would have just taken massively longer. You know, nobody has to go, no one has to, no one has to buy a device. You don't have to go and ingest all this data. It's all kind of there, ready to go. Um, you just need to spend a billion dollars training the model, um, which is maybe another conversation. Whereas um, I think what a lot of people didn't understand about crypto was, and particularly the more interesting parts of crypto to me, which are the idea you actually could run this as software, as opposed to using it as currency or as a sort of mechanism for speculation, which I find very boring. But you know, the idea that you could basically build Instagram on a blockchain is very interesting, but it was kind of like talking about um, YouTube in, 2000, in, in 1990. Like, yes, but we actually, we have to have the web first. And nobody's got everyone, nobody even has a modem, never mind broadband, everyone's got dial up, but so we have nobody's bought a dial up modem yet. And that's sort of where crypto, I think, still is, is like there's more years, more info of those kind of low level four letter acronym infrastructure to get built. Something similar, I think, with VR, you know, I mean, one of the, the charts I kind of, I think I had in this year's presentation and, and last year as well, was just showing how long it took for smartphones to happen. So people start getting interested in obviously the internet and mobile internet in like 99 and 2000. European mobile operators spent 110 billion euros buying cellular um, 3G spectrum in 2000, which is like 150 billion now or 200 billion now, whatever the calculation would be. People are buying these devices and there are smartphones and people are using the mobile internet and there are camera phones and there are mobile games. And so there is sort of stuff happening. Um, and the GAR charts are going up every year. But the iPhone is launched in 2007 iPhone type sales, so iPhone and Android sales don't really take off until 2010. It takes until sort of 2015 before you get to the point that like most people have got one of these things. So it's sort of 15 years after people really get excited about this stuff. And I think there's a sort of similar point to make about VR here that, you know, Oculus, the Oculus acquisition was now almost 10 years ago. And we're still not there. And there's probably at least another five years. There's another thesis that says, no, it's not five years, it's 20 years, that this is sort of like looking at the Newton or, you know, the IBM Simon or General Magic, and like, the right idea, come back in 20 years. And when you talk about the infrastructure that's not yet there for, for Web3 and, and, and VR on the Web3 side, is it the scalability technologies or um, is it something else? Because even if the scalability stuff was there, it feels like the what is there to scale, it feels like the use cases aren't quite super popular that they're exploding um, aside from some NFT stuff or something. But So I don't like the use case argument. And the reason I don't like it is that, you know, I started my career as a telecoms analyst. And so I was, as I sort of just alluded to, I was looking at mobile and mobile internet in sort of 99, 2000, 2001. And the question absolutely every investor asked was, well, what's the killer use case? What's the killer app for 3G? 
And so people talked about, well, maybe it's M mobile banking, no M. So you'd have these reports and they would list 150 things that had M at the beginning. So it's M banking and M commerce and M TV, M television and M this and M that. And video calls were going to be a big thing. And it's kind of funny how like people have no historical memory because I said like people thought video calls were going to be a big thing on 3G and they never happened. And some one of these kind of anti-crypto um, um, would be influencers jumps in and says look at benedict you're an idiot everyone's using facetime everyone's using zoom it's like yes but that's 15 years later facetime was launched i think apple announced facetime something like a decade after the 3g auctions and it didn't use 3g it needed 4g it wouldn't have worked on a 3g connection and when people are actually talking about 3g video calls what they meant was a circuit switch call using a pstn numbering system with a 64k video channel where you would be billed by the second like any other phone call and guess what that didn't happen nobody did that and so everyone was asking well what's the 3g killer app and the answer was the ki there was the wrong question what you were actually saying was what's the killer app for having the internet on your phone and the answer was having the internet on your phone, like having everything on a phone where that was like a good experience. And actually the answer was being able to have a computer in your pocket that was connected to the internet that you would take everywhere. So again, it was like, it was the wrong question in like four or five different ways. And I think kind of the same, it's like, thinking, well, what was the killer app for the internet? Well, I suppose you could say the web was the killer app for the internet. Fine, so what was the killer app for the web? If you kind of say that, oh, well, it was Amazon or it was, well, no, the killer app for the web was the web. And I think the same thing now, like this is an idea. It's like saying, well, what's the killer app for open source? It's the wrong, it's the wrong layer of abstraction to understand it. This is an architectural layer that will allow, allow you to build a broad class of things in a different way. What's the killer app for that? There isn't a killer app for that. I've always seen you as, as sober on the, on the Web3 uh, issue. Because you know, a very cynical take would be, you know, we've been focusing on Web3 crypto for the last you know, a few years or so, and we should have been more focused on, on AI, missed it right under, under our nose, you know, 2023, what are even, the, what are even people doing with Web3, web uh, you know, in crypto? And so I'm, I'm curious, as you've, you know, reflected on the hype over the past few years, what are the things that were, were overhyped that aren't going to be the vision of the future, like the visions that you never, never bought? And what are the things that people are underappreciating now about the, uh, the impact that Web3 web and crypto will have? I mean, I mentioned, I think the part of the challenge for both metaverse as a word and web three as a word, it's funny, this is kind of going to be kind of a bizarre analogy, but this is sort of phenomena that, that you notice if you, you, if you ever pay attention to this stuff, I rarely do, which is that you've got around Europe, these sort of royal families where they lost the kingdom. So like the Russian royal family or the Greek royal family or the French royal family, and like the kingdom went away 100, 200 years ago. And there's like three different claimants to the throne. So there's two different people who claim that they are the the rightful head of it, but it, and it's to do with like, was that were you allowed to marry that person, or who is you know is is this cousin or that cousin the next in line, um, which can actually be be less obvious than you would think. And the reason I mention this is like, if you actually had the king, then there wouldn't be any argument because somebody would have become king, right? And that would be it, and you wouldn't be arguing about well, your great grandfather, the line split in 1870, because there would be a king, <laughs> and there wouldn't be any argument about who the king is. And it's kind of the same with, um, this is what reminds me of looking at Metaverse and Web3, is there's no actual product. If there was an actual product, then you could say, well, that's what it is. But because there's no product, people just sort of invent all sorts of imaginary things and say, well, that's Metaverse, and this is Metaverse, and that's Metaverse, and the same with Web3. Suddenly, sort of anything that you can think of that might be cool that might happen in the next 10 years 
is metaverse and also metaverse is somehow also web3 and so these words sort of completely lost any meaning um and i and i don't mean that in a kind of rhetorical sense i mean quite quite literally like if somebody says metaverse you cannot know what they mean because there's like 10 different things they might be talking about and the same thing for web3 the same thing for web3 and it's, it's kind of easier to say what what was web2 originally supposed to mean what web3 was originally supposed to mean was that you could build software on a blockchain and so you could actually build Instagram on a blockchain. I mean, it wouldn't literally be Instagram. The new thing is never the old thing. But you could build a social thing that billions of people were using and have it be running on a blockchain instead of be running on private servers owned by Meta or on us, or indeed like Snap runs on, on Google Cloud. Like in, instead of being running on a private cloud system where there's one company that writes the software, it could be you should think of a blockchain as being a distributed open source computer. That it's like it is a distributed open source cloud computing system in which anybody can see all the code and see what's happening and see how it's working. That to me is very interesting. Which things would be better if you ran it like that becomes a conversation. And how do you deal with sort of tragedy of the commons problems around that becomes an interesting question. But I don't think you could build Instagram on Ethereum now, even after the merge. You know, there's still layer two and layer three and all sorts of other stuff that would have to happen before you'd be able to do that. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, there were all these arguments in the mid 90s saying, well, the web isn't going to scale. The Internet isn't going to scale. And just because people said X in the past and were wrong doesn't mean that if people say Y today, they must be wrong. It's kind of a very basic fallacy that people have in talking about this stuff. But you kind of have to like also understand, yes, like it can be hard. You can be wrong when you say this stuff and you can get these predictions. These predictions can be difficult. But it is, you know, again, as I said, it's sort of like looking at the internet in like 1989 or 1990. Um, you're not going to be able, never mind YouTube, you can't build Amazon in 1990. Right. And and so let's fast forward to whenever you can build the, the Amazon, maybe it's a decade, maybe it's two decades, you know, whenever it is, how do you think about what will be built on a blockchain or even more broadly, what will be decentralized? And then there's also this vision of, you know, giving effortlessly giving users uh, upside, um, you know, so what, what kind of vision we'll be using, you know, in this Web3 world, what, kind of what part of the web versus, hey, maybe it's just better centralized uh, the, the way it is now. So there's a sort of people kind of rush for metaphors here. Metaphor I always kind of liked was that if I stand next to a highway, I trust that the drivers won't hit me. If I stand next to a railway line, I don't have to trust that the train won't hit me. You know, it's like those, you know, the how like those Howard Lloyd movies where he stands in the middle of the railway junction and the train goes straight past him. Like he knows he's safe. He can see where the tracks are. He can see the junction. He can see the, the movement of the switches. He knows the train isn't going to hit him. And so the part of the idea of, of running this stuff on a blockchain is that you can see all the code. So you can see how it works. And Chris Dixon, I think, called this the, the, don't, the can't be evil thesis. And so you would need a vote in some way of all of the users of the system in order to be able to, 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 to do that, uh, to change anything. And then in, in principle, all the users of the system would have a vote and they would have some sort of share in the economics. And so you use this thing and it works and therefore you were there early and so you've got more equity is the wrong word, but you've got more ownership, you've got more stake. And so you build your Instagram just go with this as a metaphor and so the more followers you have the more share of the ad revenue you get or the 
whatever the revenue is, if people are paying to post or paying for whatever it is, the earlier you join, the more you get, the more followers you get, the more engagement you drive. And that can all be in, in the code and you can see the metrics and you can see, it's like looking at a piece of clockwork, you can see how it works. So that, no, and so that's all, all very sort of compelling and interesting. And I think um, a lot of this is, reminds me of open source, both in literally in the sense it's sort of an open source computer, but also in the sense that open source people were very religious. And so there was this whole idea that open source was going that, that open source was going to destroy Microsoft, that no one would ever pay for software, that buying software was evil, that selling software was immoral. You know, it wasn't just like a bad model. You know, it was in, it was immoral to do this. Um, it was ideolo- it was an ideological kind of religious objection. Of course, what happened is twenty five years later, the internet everything runs on open source, but consumer, but and yet um, it kind of doesn't. You know, everything is open source under the hood. Um, but Facebook isn't open, and Mac OS is well, is, is, is open, runs on open source, but it's not open. And yet it has millions and billions of app downloads. So what does it mean to say that it's open? Microsoft owns GitHub and people still pay for Office 365. So the reality when the religious thing kind of gets deployed can be a bit more complicated than that. And, you know, if you, you kind of describe that model of, okay, you've got this Instagram running on this open source system and everyone can see how it all works. And so I'm an influencer. I post an ad. The advertiser puts the money into an escrow account on the blockchain. I can see it's there. When I post the ad, mechanistically, X percent of the money goes to me. Y percent goes to the early stakeholders in the system. Z percent goes to whoever it is that's running the infrastructure. And it's all in the code and you can see it all. Now, the problem with this, I think, is um, it's basically is to take everything that people in the late 18th and early 19th century said for why democracy won't work. <laughs> which is, you know, we are spot, you know, how do you deal with the tragedy of the commons? What happens with the mob? What happens if people are tricked? And so you construct these elaborate constitutions and say, we'll have separation of powers and we'll have a court and we'll have this and we'll have that. And we'll have a rule that says the magistrate has to t- step down over this, over this period. And if you look at the history of, of like the last, you know, Americans tend to not really understand this, but like, if you look at democracy in the 19th and 20th century, you can point to probably 10 or 50 X more places where that didn't work. You know, look at all those African countries that got their nice model constitution the day of their independence. And where were they five years later? Look at all Latin America. You know, they all had these nice model constitutions and like, what's the history of democracy in Latin America in the last 200 years? And, you know, or in Europe, you know, look at Germany. You know, look at Italy, they had these nice democratic constitutions and they, they kind of broke. So, you know, it's very easy to say, well, we'll structure, we'll write this constitution for how this Instagram you think is going to work. What actually happens if it turns out that you need to change something and the people that have the votes don't want to change it? How does that, what happens then? How does that work? What happens next? Is it a good thing for everything to be securitized? Is it a good thing if every mechanic in a social network has money, could have money attached to it? Is it a good thing if I'm being paid for every post? Is it a good thing if I'm being paid to get for, for, for every penny of engagement, every unit of engagement that I get? Because that creates, um, what's the phrase? I always forget who it is, but there's somebody who won the Nobel Prize for pointing out that if you use any economic metric to set economic policy, then that metric will stop reflecting um, the economy. Goodhart's law? Yes, exactly. It's Goodhart's law. Yeah. So Goodhart's law would apply here. That if you suddenly, if, if, if all of the metrics and the engagement within a social network are now subject to money, that will change how it works. That won't just be kind of a neutral externality, that will change the mechanics of it. So you kind of, you can kind of propose this kind of model, this, this ideal fantasy world, and then you say, well, yes, but what will actually happen? And you have these people who are sort of say, well, there'll be no gatekeepers in this world. Well, really? I always thought there'll just be new kinds of gatekeepers. 
big clout comes to mind as a model that tried to financialize Twitter in a extremely kind of aggressive way. Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, there was, there was a bunch of stuff wrong with that. I mean, one of them is like doing that, the old thing, but on the new architecture almost never works. You have to do actually some new thing that takes advantage of the new architecture. The other was, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't, it was also the wrong time because Elon hadn't bought Twitter and screwed it up at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, and and it was also that it was it wasn't just it was on the new architecture. The whole pitch was it's Twitter, but with Bitcoin, which is you know reminds me an awful lot of open source projects twenty years ago where they would say it's Microsoft Office, but open source. And guess what? But open source is not a selling point to anybody. It's a selling point to engineers. So if you are building you know engineering infrastructure and it's open source, that's actually a selling point. But if you just want to write letters, the fact that the thing you're using to write letters or do spreadsheets is open source, you don't care. It's not not it's it's not a feature yeah it is interesting because yeah a lot of people are building twitter <laughs> clones in some capacity um especially as you mentioned now now's the time and farcaster is is one that is effectively a twitter clone but with two things enabled by by crypto you know uh, one is that um you know you can't censor uh someone two is, is um you know building on top of the platform uh for for developers uh whereas twitter sh shut down its api yeah, I mean, the censorship thing, again, I think is, is one of these kind of weird ideological back alleys that you know, if you go and ask, you know, 3 billion people who use social networks, what is the censorship problem with social networks? They will tell you the problem is they don't take down enough stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is they don't get rid of enough Nazis. It's not that they take down too many Nazis. Yeah. And so then this question is the API, is the developer, you know, building on top of it a big enough Thing. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, this goes back to the democracy question, which is, who is it that make, you have to have somebody who's making decisions. Um, you know, you can't run a country entirely on referenda. You know, you need to have some sort of executive power. And so there has to be somebody that can say, no, yes, we're shipping this. No, we're not shipping that. And I think you could argue this is one of the reasons why open source projects never managed to produce a breakout consumer product back, you know, the, the early 2000s. So a bunch, that could be a whole other podcast. But one of them is that open source projects were systemically extremely bad at user interface. They were very good at building engineering infrastructure. Um, but, you know, we spent, you know, desktop Linux was a joke. It was, this was the running joke. This is the year of desktop Linux. And, you know, here we are 20 years later. There is no desktop Linux for consumers. No consumer uses desktop Linux. It's only something that's used by engineers. And then you get the engineer saying, oh, but Android is running it. And yes, but people use Android because it's not, they got rid of all of the stuff, the abstracted away all of this, all of the, all of those, those UI issues. And Google sat and designed the UI. Um, and so that, again, applies with, with, even more so, I think, with blockchain is how do you abstract away the UI? And this is like kind of one of the kind of elemental questions, I think, for building something on a, on a blockchain is um, how do you get to a point that the user doesn't need to know what architecture you've used? Or let me rephrase that. If you can do that relatively easily, but if you do that, then what's the point? Because if the point of this is that it's portable and composable and addressable and they have ownership, if you abstract that away so that it, it becomes easy to use, then what was the point in doing it? And so there's a kind of a, a weird, like there's an interesting product balance to find in that. Um, how do you give people the benefits of ownership and portability without making them like print out their seed phrases? What is the reason why you're not using, just using a database? Can you, those reasons survive if you are not requiring people to install MetaMask and audit smart contracts, 
you know, what is, is there a path between those two are they, or are they fundamentally in conflict? And I don't think there's much agreement on that at the moment. What you certainly can't do is say, well, everyone's going to have to learn how to use this because that just doesn't work. I mean, this was sort of, well, everyone will have to learn how to compile their own code and how to, you know, install, you know, new kernel extensions because Linux is so great. No, no, fuck off. No one will do that. They just want to turn the computer on and have it work. But the, and that was solvable in open source because like Mac OS runs on open source, the user doesn't need to know. But as I, you know, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but under a lot of the challenge for Web3 is that the reasons you're using it are things that the user would need to know about. And to your music example, why aren't you running that on a database? Now, write down your answers and say, but do the users know about that? Because if the users don't know, then what's the point? Are you more bullish on reimagining kind of internet uh, applications or, um, you know, things like Instagram, as the example we brought up, then sort of, you know, but in a native Web3 way, as opposed to rebuilding the financial system or reimagining the, the financial system? So again, so 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 sort of several observations here. One of them is I go back to my point about Netflix, that an awful lot of these questions are basically financial services questions, not tech questions. Second, I think a lot of the discussions here are basically Americans wishing they had stuff that they don't know, maybe don't know that the rest of the developed world had like 20 years ago. Like, um, you know, I can do a free instant transfer. Yeah. I think I was doing that in like 1998. <laughs> yeah, we can get rid of checks. Like, I'm, yeah, I swear to God, I moved to America. I had to pay my check for the rent. I had to phone my father and say, how does this work? What is this? Because I, like, I'd done like two checks in my entire life. Um, what does it mean? If they say they want me to endorse a check. I have literally no idea what that means. Because <laughs> that's something my father hasn't done since the 80s. Um, and so there is this whole chunk, and I think you could see this kind of in PayPal as well. There's this whole chunk of like leapfrog the, the like the last 40 years of the financial services industry that America kind of just never had, never happened in America. Um, so that's the piece. And so then I think um, there's, again, there's a strain of ideology. So I mentioned religion. There's the open sourcey sort of religion of let's get rid of gatekeepers and let's get rid of Google and Facebook, where previous open source people want to get rid of Microsoft. There's also this sort of um, gold bug fiat currency, inflation, central banks are evil, the government might steal my money thing, which again, is very, it's very ideological. And, you know, look, if you live in Turkey or Argentina, then the government might either literally steal more my, my money or deflate away half the value of it this year is a real thing. And keeping your money in gold under the bed is like a rational thing to do. Whereas if you live in or, you know, Germany in the 20s or whatever it is. And, you know, if you were Jewish in the 20s, then having diamonds might be quite good, although sadly it tended not to work. You know, being able to, if you're living in Afghanistan, like being able to put your money on a USB stick sounds like a great idea. If you live in like Britain or France or America or Japan, this just, just sounds insane. Like, why the fuck would I want to do that? Like, I'm not worried about the government stealing, stealing my money. And yes, you say this to people and they think you're an idiot. Like, like most people are not worried about this. Most people do not own gold bars. That's not a use case for most people, which is again, like being able to compile the source code is not something that most people care about and open source people could never accept that. Strip all of that away. Um, yes, there's some interesting things in there somewhere. Quite a lot of them have sort of speed run the last hundred years of um, financial services innovation. Um, and financial services regulation, or don't understand why we had that. Here we are. Useful book for anybody in DeFi. Um, 
Whoops, there we are. Reminiscences of a stock operator. Nice illustrated edition with the original artwork from the Saturday Evening Post. And this is a biography of, um, what's his name? Jesse Livermore, who was a famous stock manipulator. And this is in the days when there basically weren't any laws about what you could do. I think an awful lot of people in the last couple of years were basically working their way through that by page by page. And they didn't then go and look up Jesse Livermore and find out what happened to him, which is that he went bankrupt three times and killed himself. <laughs> um, there's a science, funny, there's a science fiction story um, about an alien race that like the, the humans encounter an alien race and sort of beam down libraries to them. And one of these sort of alien politicians um, reads Machiavelli and goes and sees his power and says, I should probably read Julius Caesar next. And of course gets assassinated. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there's like, there's a lot of like, you know, speed running Wall Street here. Now within that, there's, yes, there's some interesting ideas about, but, but, but mostly these are kind of Wall Street conversations. Can you do interesting new stuff? I don't know, ask a, you know, ask a commercial banker. It is, it is interesting. Uh, I, uh, science fiction works both ways in terms of, you know, it inspires, but it also deflates. I, I used to be really excited about income share agreements and then I read this book, uh, The Unincorporated Man. It uh, in the book, uh, the, the uh, one corporation owns a stake in in everybody that is a you know somewhat feels like they're slaves to the corporation, and that uh, got me less excited about the idea of uh, you know income share agreements for for ownership and everyone's upside. Uh, a couple things before we get to the AI portion. There's ten different ways of describing the the metaverse. Um, what is the most accurate way of, of describing it. is it the idea that we're going to live more of our more of especially as the headset, headsets or tools get better we're going to live more of our lives uh on, on the internet and thus a, a whole uh you know method of interaction and, and economy so i would have agreed with you except that now, now i encounter people who think that you'll be able to use the metaverse on your smartphone at which point to me that i have literally no fucking idea what you're talking about <laughs> like that's the internet yeah. you don't need a new word to describe the internet um so there's sort of there's two broad, I would say there's there's two buckets to talk about here. One of them is relatively easy to understand is the idea that some combination of VR and or AR, meaning like these glasses at displays, becomes the next universal device after smartphones. And so VR gets much smaller, gets much lighter, gets much better. We work out the optics to have something that looks like this, maybe powered by something in my pocket, whatever, that can be a display that can place things into the world around me. And that becomes a universal device. That's a pretty straightforward, easy to understand thesis. Now, the basic argument against it is A, the optics will never work for, for, for AR, don't work. But for VR, the argument very simply is if I'd shown you a PlayStation 5 20 years ago, you would have said, oh my God, this is amazing, this is the future. And guess what? Games console install base is sort of 200 million units, maybe 250 million units. It's not a small market, but it's not a universal device. Most people see a games console game and go, that's very pretty, and walk away. And now there's a rabbit hole we can go down around, yes, there's 3 billion people playing games. Well, no, it's probably about one and a half and most of that's Candy Crush. And like, what's the move like? How many people are actually playing games? And are they playing games on smartphones? But the kind of the core of it is that VR is this, by default, this sort of deep, narrow experience. And maybe it will just remain a deep, narrow experience. Maybe it will remain a subset of games consoles. And most people will say that's very pretty, but won't use it and it won't become a universal device. Um, AR, there's more basic science problems to solve, um, but you know we'll see. But that's like a narrow metaverse thesis in which when you say metaverse, you're basically saying, it's like saying mobile internet. It's as though we'd come up with a cooler word, the cooler way of saying mobile internet. Well, this is VR internet. Um, there's a much broader and much more hand-wavy description, 
which is, again, it's back to, you know, going back to talking about 18th century philosophers, it's sort of imagining this imaginary constitution. So the thing that 18th century philosophers do is they describe some imaginary country. And Plato does this with the Republic. Like it create, it describes an imaginary country which has an imaginary constitution where everything works incredibly well and all the stuff we don't like about our own society has been fixed. And so this is also the, part of the problem with Web3. It's like on web, in Web3, there'll be no gatekeepers because of this. But that doesn't solve the reasons why there are gatekeepers. And you know, in you know, in in my imaginary kingdom, the judges will all be just, and the king will always be honest. And like, yes, but why will they always be that? And the same thing with with metaverse is like, all everything will be interoperable, everything will be portable. Um, you'll be able to move assets between every different thing. Like, why does that make sense? I mean, I always reference that movie. Um, Wreck-It Ralph here, if you ever saw that. So like video game characters move between games, basically. So, but the kind of the point is, okay, so I, so, so all my assets in all of these different metaverse environments are all portable and I can take them from one place to another. Well, why? Why is it that companies don't let you do that now? Why would that change? Why would they do that? But more fundamentally, you know, I go into Fortnite and I buy a 15 foot tall yellow banana character with a gun that shoots exploding tomatoes. Cool. Okay, now I go and open up um, my Top Gun game and I'm flying my F-14. So what am I, what am I sitting in the cockpit of the plane as a giant banana? Like, what does that mean? I go into Call of Duty. And I'm sneaking through the forest, like crawling through the mud with the other VR, with my other VR special forces guys, except I'm a fuck off great yellow banana shooting. <laughs> like, it's like <laughs> the reason the assets aren't portable between the games is kind of because the games are different. Yeah. It's partly the business model. Yes. And, you know, you can't move assets between Fortnite and PUBG and maybe that would make sense, but, and they don't want you to. But it's also that they like they're designing the game and the people designing the game want to be able to control how all the different components work so that it's a good game. But it's also that, you know, as I said, you know, go by, I buy an F-14, you know, I buy a C an, an AC-130 gunship that's got a bunch of 30 millimeter cannons and a couple of recoilless rifles on it. And I take that into Call of Duty. Like, what happens? Does everybody else have to go out and buy an F-14 and take that? Like, then it's like it's a whole other game. So, I mean, a lot of that sort of portability, interoperability stuff, it just seems to me like kind of vague hand-waving that's completely detached from any discussion of what the actual product would be. And we were talking a while ago about how long this stuff takes as well, and then maybe this is sort of a more fundamental point. You know, presume for the sake of argument that in five, between five and 10 years' time, say in five years' time, VR really takes off or AR really takes off, Apple announces something this summer. Apple announced the iPhone in 2007. Sales didn't take off till 2010. So Apple announced something this summer. By 2025 to 2030, you've got hundreds of millions of people using this. Okay, now imagine it's 2000 and you're trying to describe what the smartphone internet's going to look like. You can't. Anything you say would be wrong. You, say, you wouldn't even have got the App Store, although there were App Stores. Um, you wouldn't have got Instagram, you wouldn't have got Uber, you wouldn't have got TikTok, you wouldn't have got all the, you wouldn't have got Tinder, you wouldn't have got all the stuff that mattered about how it worked. And the same thing now, like even if you believe that VR is going to be the universal device and 3 billion people will have one in 10 years time, any prediction you make today about the specific market structure of that and who's going to be in charge and how it will work is going to be wrong. And it's kind of pointless to even attempt to do it. It's interesting, this idea of, you know, Gaming companies keep their virtual goods in game because you know if you can port, make it portable, perhaps they'd be less likely to buy. 
there's this broader question of anytime you provide more consumer surplus, does that just mean the new version of the of the business that had this sort of uh, you know moat that is now you know less powerful because of the new technology? Is that new business just smaller, or do they find this new business model that didn't exist before that now enables them to to be bigger? Do you, do you have a perspective on the idea of anytime there's more consumer surplus, are the businesses usually bigger, or are they? It's difficult to answer. I mean, on, on the kind of on the narrow game point, I think there's a business model point and there's a product point. I mean, in a different context, it's kind of like saying that Photoshop and Excel should be interoperable. What would that mean? You know, the interoperability layer is the file system, you know, and the copy paste. Like, but the idea that like Excel should be open, able to open Photoshop files, like, well, then it would be Photoshop. Like, what is? I don't even understand what that would mean. Um, and the, on this kind of surplus point, I mean. We've had this kind of long-term shift from marginal away from marginal cost, um, which is actually one of the things that's interesting about generative machine learning now. Is like when is the last time it as a it cost money every time a consumer clicked OK in your app? When is the last time like your consumer clicks OK and it like takes thirty seconds for something to happen? Like dial up maybe, but not even dial up really. Um, you know, we're kind of in mainframe territory here. We're kind of we're nineteen seventies time sharing kind of territory, where like you know, actually cost a material amount of money for a consumer to click on something. Mm. Um, and one of the kind of elemental questions about about LLMs or whatever you want to call them, generative machine learning, is is um, like the second question after the AGI question is what's the cost structure and the size of the models going to look like in the medium term? Let's transition into the AI conversation. You've uh, you've asked you know is this the is this the iPhone moment is this the the internet moment is this you know the something way way bigger than both of those why don't you reflect on on kind of the different forks from from here and why that's important there's a, there's an urban legend that I think during the, the Cuban missile crisis there's a rumor that the missiles have launched on the stock exchange in, there's a rumor in the stock exchange that the missiles have launched and everyone starts selling and somebody a veteran trader goes out and starts buying and he says well look this is binary. Either the room is true, in which case we're all dead, or it's not true, in which case the stocks are cheap. And it's kind of how I think about AGI in that no one knows. Um, it seems deeply unlikely. There's a lot of very kind of, kind of bad logic or Ill illogical argument. Um, but basically, the people who spent 20 years arguing about this stuff don't know. Well, they do, certainly don't agree. And, and you know, I don't think there's, there's, and I can't like arbitrate between Jan Lecun and somebody else about who's quite right about what gradient descent is going to do because the only gradient descent I know about is going down a hill with, in second gear. So like, I don't fucking know. Um, so, um, so like, it's almost like take the AGI conversation, kind of park it because like we don't know. It seems very unlikely, but like you get. So then the question is, then you get into like 10 other questions. And I think most people in Silicon Valley, everybody in Silicon Valley, as I say, is kind of walking around with their kind of trying to hold onto the top of their head with both hands to stop it flying off. Because this is clearly like an enormously huge thing. But then the question is, well, okay, but what is it exactly? And then there's like 10 questions about like, well, what is it? How does it work? What, what, what does this mean? Um, I think the spread of opinions is that there are people who would say, okay, this is a second wave of AI. And that was a big, the second wave of machine learning, which has been a very big deal for tech in the last 10 years. Or it's more generally, you could say this is a sort of equivalent to the iPhone in this sort of completely resets a huge swathe of how consumer um, internet experiences will work. That seems a relatively straightforward thing to say. You could push it a little bit further and say, um, this sort of looks a bit like the internet. I think Bill Gates said that it reminded him a lot of Xerox Park and seeing a GUI. 
because what a GUI meant was a step change in who could use computers because you didn't have to learn how to use a command line. You could just click on stuff and you could teach yourself much more. But somebody else had to write the program, still had to write the program, or you had to learn how to program it, or you had to buy the program or something. But the program had to be created for you to be able to use it. Whereas with an LLM in principle, you can kind of just ask the computer to make the thing for you. Um, and so it's, again, a step change in how much software there can be, what software there can be, how accessible it could be. You know, it's a bit like Excel. You know, Excel is the world's biggest IDE. Like, suddenly you can just, like, go out and create the program in it. It's like going from Excel to Bloomberg. You know, it's those kinds of step changes. Um, then there's people who I think are a bit more overexcited. You say, well, this is electricity. This is computers. This is fire. I'd, again, come back to that sense of how quickly this stuff gets deployed. Um, you know, cloud is a relatively old and understood technology. And if you're in the tech industry now, it's like it's boring. It's done. It's happened. It's only sort of 20% of enterprise workflows. You know, Google just moved from um, Oracle to SAP to process their internal payments. Um, I mean, this is like the joke, you know, the single biggest thing protecting us from, from AGI is that, that everybody's using Discord. Um, that slows everything down. So you've got all of this kind of swirling mass of ideas. And I don't think anyone, we're, we're kind of struggling to kind of pin down to even, okay, what are the half dozen or dozen questions? Never mind what are the answers to that. We were talking to Elad Gill and, and, and Sarah Guo uh, from, from the investor perspective. You're a venture partner at, at, at Mosaic, and I'm sure you know, they're asking you, how should we be thinking about that in terms of you know, what are company opportunities that will be uh, durable and defensible and not just taken up by the big, uh, the, the, the big companies? Um, how, how do you think about what are, the, uh, what are the, the startup opportunities or how would you approach this? Uh, as a venture investor? So some sort of a priori assumptions. One of them is, um, you know, you go and use Midjourney, and the first thing you think is, okay, this needs, imagine what this would be if it, if it had some product around it. That's amazing. And then, I mean, obviously using it in Discord is just like ridiculous, but just the principle of just typing stuff into a prompt is not a great consumer UI or great UI for anyone. It's very powerful, but it's kind of, you know, it's not a good user interface. You know, there's clearly better user interface and better product to be built around that. And, you know, in general, like there isn't one database company, you know, you don't just go and buy Oracle. There's millions, hundreds of thousands of different database products that do different things. And when you do your expenses, you don't say like, I'm going to use some database now. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's an expensive product. And so you kind of need to build the product and the go-to-market and the user experience and the customer success and the support around creating a tool to solve some problem within a company. And now that thing may all be running on top of OpenAI. There may be three foundations, this is sort of the Kind of this phrase foundation model, which I like I hadn't heard until like two weeks ago. So a bit like metaverse, like what does foundation model mean? It may be that there's like three models and everything else plugs onto the top of those as APIs. So that may be one way it works that you've got, um, there's like those three models and then maybe there's some middleware and then there's like the 10,000 companies, software companies in the world all plug onto that. That's one path. But even if that's the case, even if there are only those three models, you know, when you do the, um, we need to validate that we've done criminal records checks for people hiring, getting hired as security guards in this shopping mall. 
they're not just going to go to chat GPT and say, hey, do a criminal records check. That's not how it works. I mean, you mess, yes, if we had AGI, maybe it would. Like if we actually had God level AGI, then yes, you could just say, hey, hey, God, tell me, does this person have a criminal record? And that's done. Um, but you, you need actual specific product all around that. So I think that's like a kind of a basic question. Like it's a kind of a basic sort of a priori assumption. Then everything becomes questions. Like why is it, at what point does this, how long does this stuff stay this expensive? What does it mean if it does? Are there always only going to be two or three models or is it going to be more like machine learning where we got to a point that it's like databases, there's millions of machine learning models. Um, so that's sort of a second level question. And then maybe a third, the third question would be following on from those, what happened with the last wave of machine learning was that you sort of say, well, you, how do you have the data that's specific to this problem? How do you get product and customers before, how do you build the product before you've got the data? How do you get the data before you've got customers? So it's a kind of circular question. You need, to, you need customers to get data, but you need data to have the product to get to customers. And does the product get better indefinitely if you get more data? Or does it reach a point where it kind of works? There's an S curve. And how much data is that? And how many people could have that? Could, is that going to be like 10 people? Or is, could anybody have that much data? So those are just sort of very, very early sort of how does this work kind of questions. I think stepping back, like to me, like the first question, the first is the AGI question. The second question is the cost. And the third is the error rate, which kind of is the AGI question. And if the error rate goes to zero, then you've kind of got an AGI. Um, maybe, maybe not. But right now, you know, if I ask ChatGPT4, like the current one, write a biography of Benedict Evans, hit it reload four times, you'll get four different biographies of four different people. And they overlap quite a lot. But, you know, my first job was investment banking. Yes, but at DKW, no. Um, no, it was at McKinsey. No, I worked for The Guardian. And what's happening up here, of course, is it's pattern generation. It's not answering the question. It's not doing a database lookup. It's saying, what would an answer to that question look like? What, or even what do answers to questions like that look like? Which is why it matters how you change your, how you ask the question. So if you ask the question and start by saying, imagine you're an expert, then you get a different answer because you get the kind of expert answer that an expert would give. By extension, you could kind of say, imagine you're an idiot and, answer, and don't know anything about this. And then you'll get like an even more like, so you're like, there's this kind of, what it's doing is it's matching the pattern of the question with the pattern of an answer. And at the moment, that's like pick a number 60, 70% accurate. At uh, what point does that get to be 80, 90% accurate? In what domains does, what, like, what accuracy do you need in what domains? And can you see the accuracy? We're still at the stage where like it's happening so fast that there's always new questions and new ways of understanding it. Well, as you were drawing that kind of stack diagram, it brought to mind a theory that I've heard you talk about before, which is that there's two ways to make money in software, the old bundling and unbundling. So my theory about what AI is starting to do right now that I wanted to bounce off you is I see it unbundling jobs into tasks and thus enabling kind of a re-architecting of how stuff gets done with the task as the fundamental unit of work. And then on the other side, the, the bundling side, I see things like ChatGPT, which is you know, certainly first uh, incarnation starting to, with their plugin architecture, bundle all of the apps that we use in life into this kind of new super app where you talk first to a consistent interface, and then it goes out and deals with all the APIs and browses the web for you and 
you know, at some point you may want to get into that experience, but to the degree that you don't, you know, it can kind of handle it for you. Um, so what do you think about that bundling, unbundling lens on AI? The metaphor that I always use is I always talk about um, Jack Lemon in The Apartment. It's a Billy Wilder film from 1960, where he's a clerk in an insurance company. And you've got these long shots of this office floor in an office building in midtown Manhattan. And everybody has kind of a one-person desk with a typewriter and a Rolodex and an electromechanical adding machine and an inter stack of internal mail envelopes. And so what happens is a document arrives, you do the calculations on this adding machine, you type the results with this typewriter, you put an in internal mail, you write somebody's name on it, you give it to a mailboy, he carries it off to another desk somewhere else in the building. And so the whole building is basically an Excel file. You know, Jack Lemon is a cell in a spreadsheet. The whole building is a spreadsheet. Once a week, someone on the top floor presses F9 and the whole building recalculates from top to bottom and generates new insurance prices. And in, I mean, as you may know, computer originally meant was a job title. That was a person. He, he is a computer. That's what his job is. And in 1965 or 1970, they brought a mainframe and all of that processing, information processing got moved into a, into a mainframe. If you go and look through old sentence reports, you'll see these general job categories like data keys. A data key is somebody who is holding a piece of paper and is keying the data into a computer, which is not a job anymore, except to the IRS, obviously. And that's actually not a joke. That's literally what happens. If you kind of think about those cycles over the last 75 years, you know, what would, you, what would we think is it, is it, is it that's happened? Is it, is it people used to do a data entry and input and calculation, and now they do more decision-taking and they do maybe more routing? And there's a lot more sort of this problem has come in, who needs to send it to, who do I need to solve it to? And it goes to that person and they do these three things and then press this. So, you know, if you could, if you were sort of a more of a sort of a futurist kind of person than me, you might kind of come up with some phrasing here of um, people used to be tools and now they're routers or I don't even know what, 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 what that would be. The way I tend to look at this is that you sort of automate more and more things and you free people up to do less repetitive tasks and more creative tasks or more tasks that require high level brain functions in some way. We're going to automate another kind of another class of job. I mean, if you, you read or, or listen to Dan Brooklyn, who created the first spreadsheet software, VisiCalc, you know, how he has these stories of this, well, again, like we don't know now, but a spreadsheet was a, literally a sheet of paper with all the cells printed on it. And so a financial analyst would have like a pus stack, like a printed pack of these sheets and use those to do the calculations with a pen and paper or maybe like a hand calculator. And so all he did was take that and put that onto a computer screen. And he would show this to people and they would like literally lose control of their bodily functions because this was like years of their life that was being done in seconds. And he has these stories of people who had like had been given a job, an accounting analysis job that was expected to take like three months and they did it in an afternoon, like literally like from months to afternoons. And what happens as a result of Excel and spreadsheets and then Excel is that you have more analysts. It's not that you have pure analysts. We mentioned Goodhart's law. The other law here, I think, is Jevons' paradox. Yeah, so Jevons is a 19th century economist. And at this time, Britain is obviously has the, by far the largest navy in the world, and it's converted to steamships. And Britain is basically made of coal. But people are saying, well, we're using all this coal really fast, and we might run out, and then we'll have like a serious geopolitical problem. And then a bunch of people say, yes, but the steam engines are getting much more efficient every year, so we'll use less coal. And Jevons says, no, 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 no. 
if you make the steam engines more efficient, we'll use more coal because the steam engines will be cheaper. And so when you make the use of the resource more efficient, you use more of the resource, not less of the resource. And so what I think this very obviously applies to computing, that when you make it cheaper and easier to do the analysis, you do more analysis. We don't do less. I mean, you can, we can all of us sort of think of examples of this in our lives. You know, you go and spend three days in Excel doing analysis. If, it, if you had to do that by pen and paper, you just wouldn't have done it because it would take you like a month to do what you just did in 10 minutes in Excel. And so I think that's those are sort of like building blocks that I have for thinking about what this does to employment. It's that it will be, I mean, it's a Steve Jobs line that computers are bicycle for your mind. It seems like it's both to me. Like I certainly see the bicycle for the mind paradigm. And uh, it seems like that probably is the dominant benefit for a certain class of people. But then I look out at the world and I'm like, so many of these jobs really are largely routine. And I wonder if the right way to think about this is not so much bicycle for the mind, but like dominant technology. You know, you can certainly find plenty of examples of technology changes in the past where it's like, we don't use more steam engines. We just have a better form factor that serves you know the vast majority of the use cases i mean there's this there's analysis that people did of um you know motive power in england in the 19th century of you know beasts of burden at the beginning of the 19th century and the aggregate horsepower of all of the of all of the steam engines at the end of the 19th century and i'm sure if you ran that through to today the number would have increased by many more orders of magnitude the sort of the, the economics textbook argument here would be that it's easy to see the jobs that any new wave of automation will remove because they're right there you can go and look at them you can see those jobs. It's more difficult to imagine the new jobs that will get created because you have to imagine them. They don't exist. And yet those jobs get, get those jobs happen. And if we look over the last 200 years, there's been this continuous process of jobs getting automated away and new job, jobs getting created. That happened with the internet and it happened with PCs and it happened with GUIs and it happened with computers. So the default presumption would be that this will just continue. And the fact that we can't imagine what these new jobs will be doesn't tell us there aren't any, because that's been the pattern for the last, nobody else, nobody could have imagined our jobs 20 years ago. Um, I think the counter argument to this is that what you've been doing is sort of moving up the scale of human capability. And so you start with human beings of beasts of burden. I mean, the other image I use, so I use the image of Jack Lemmon in the apartment. I also use this image, which is a painting, 19th century Russian painting by Ilya Repin, of called Barge Haulers on the Volga. And it is basically a dozen guys pulling a barge up the stream by hand, like leaning on a rope, pulling a barge up the stream. And just on the horizon, you can see a, a trail of black smoke from a steamer that tells you how this is all going to change. And nobody is employed to pull barges up the river anymore. And yet those people got other jobs. But what happens is you go from beast to burden to you go to you know people's you know to arms you go from legs to arms to hands so to speak and you're kind of moving up to the top and in principle you could kind of get to the top and there won't be anything else left that you can't automate the problem with that is again you could have said that 50 years ago you looked at all those people in that building and you said well all of those jobs will get automated away these are all these boring repetitive jobs so what will those people do Guess what? Insurance companies probably employ just as many people as they do now. Certainly, we haven't had a net change in employment. 
And so there is this sort of, we can't know what the new jobs are problem. Yeah, I think it's always important. And I always try to keep in mind too, that it's like, it's not going to be a binary where it's like all one of these effects or all the other, right? We'll definitely see both. And kind of the, the question is kind of like, which one will predominate? But I wonder if you would venture a prediction when it comes to, say, insurance companies. You know, like, I would imagine that a lot of that headcount has gone into agent networks and, you know, effectively sales and broadening the market. And now I imagine, you know, a 2025 world where I go to allstate.com or whatever, and, you know, instead of a connect with your local agent, or maybe alongside of a connect with your local agent, there is a talk to your virtual agent. And that virtual agent is certainly going to have some advantages. But again, this is what's been happening for 100 years, 150 years. I mean, I was sort of talking about this earlier, like we were talking about travel agents. There are no travel agents anymore. You know, before the internet, if you wanted to book a flight, there were these stores that you went to and they had the flights. They had books with the flights, or maybe they had a terminal that connected to the airline system with the flights and they would make you the tickets. Gone. Those jobs are gone. So what? Like, yes, it sucked if you were that was you and that was your business and you'd spent your life like building this business. And there's always a frictional short-term pain of these jobs. But like the process, the cycle of jobs getting destroyed has been happening continuously since the Industrial Revolution. And say, so all you've just done is just describe another job that will go. Well, yeah, those jobs will go away. The question is whether there will be new, whether there's some a priori reason to think why there won't be any new jobs now, as opposed to all of the new jobs that got created over and over for the last 200 years. I think another question too, though, is like, how fast does the destruction happen? You know, because when you go back to the like industrial revolution, you are talking about a multi-generation process from like the first piston to like a refined steam engine. And here it looks like we go from GPT-2 in 2019 to GPT-4 in 2023. And that's the leap from like basically Babel to expert level human doctor. Like our next guest on the cognitive revolution is a guy who took GPT-4 on rounds. So if you in Silicon Valley kind of cloud is, if you're in the tech, like all of us in the kind of the tech industry, cloud is this kind of old boring thing and it's done. But cloud is only sort of 20% of enterprise workflows. You know, Apple announces the iPhone in 2007. It took until 2010 for the sales to take off. And it took until 2015, really, for it to really take over the, the majority of the phone industry. I think we can sort of underestimate how long it takes to get the Scottish police force to swap out the system that they use for doing criminal records checks. They're not going to do that this year or next year. In fact, the UK sales tax system runs on DEC. Literally runs on DEC computers, like which DEC hasn't existed. And I think Compact bought DEC in '99. So the company hasn't existed in 25 years. So, you know, we can sort of, I mean, on the one hand, like the, this whole thing is moving incredibly fast, partly because there's a sort of standing on the shoulders of giants point that you don't have to wait for people to buy phones. You know, you don't have to wait for everybody in the world to buy a smartphone. It's just everyone's already got. We've already got cloud, we've got the web, we've got cloud computing, we've got the GPUs, we've got, you know, Stripe, we've got everything. So everything's right there. So you can just add this one idea and like kind of, poof, okay, now there's a thousand generative AI companies and there's like 10 new projects on Product Hunt every hour. Um, so that, yes, on the one side, you've got this very rapid speed of creation. On the other side, you want to go and get Allstate to deploy this system to into their call center. 
okay, it'll take you three months to get a sales meeting. They will not deploy that this year. It will take them three years to deploy that, if that. So like the entire world doesn't just change its infrastructure in six months, even if the product that they could buy is ready in six months, which actually won't be, it'll take longer than that. So this stuff will take five, 10, 15 years to get deployed. I mean, there's another way of thinking about this maybe is, um, you know, we could have built TikTok in 2010. Yeah, you know, argue a little bit about what bandwidth looked like and how smartphones were, but it took, it took 10 years for that idea to happen. Actually, better examples we're using, we're using Riverside. Um, one of the companies I, I, I used to like talking about is Frame.io, which is basically collaborative video, professional video, not, not actually editing, but like everybody who needs to see a piece of professional video, it's all the commenting and the version tracking and the sharing. So the, edit, the editor can post the latest version and 50 people can see it and you can work on it and comment on it on mark up that bit on that slide. You could have described that in 2005. The technology was probably ready by 2010. It was probably cheap enough by 2015. It got built in 2018, it got bought by Adobe. Like it takes time, both for this stuff actually to get deployed and for people to work out the right instantiation in the right product, in the right go-to-market to get that deployed. I think that's, I think that's well put. This has been a fascinating overview on uh, you know, uh, Web3, Metaverse, AI, maybe in closing, as a closing question, you know, we're almost at May 2023. So we're almost halfway through the year. But we get back on a call, you know, February of 2024. What can you predict are the questions that you'll be asking in, in your next presentation? Well, almost kind of by kind of by, by, by definition, I can't. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the question, particularly given what's happening yeah. at the moment, the kind of questions will change. I hope we'll have a better sense of what the questions are. And we'll have a sense of better sense of some of the answers. I mean, Nathan, you may disagree, but like, I don't think we have like a consensus on what the models are going to cost and how, how that's going to evolve. I don't think we have a consensus really on what's going to happen to the error rate and whether that gets, whether we get stuck here and we're at the top of an S curve or whether it's going to go all the way up. And, and improve radically. We don't have a, like a good sense of whether they, we're in a world of like three or four foundation models or 50 foundation models or everybody can have their own. And so those sorts of like basic, how the hell does this, what does the structure of this work like at all? We may have a better sense of what those look like. But at the same time, you know, no one, two weeks ago, no one was talking about AutoGPT. And when you, you mentioned plugins, which we, can, we have, kind of haven't talked about. I feel like kind of ambivalent about ChatGPT plugins because, you know, some people, everyone looks at this and goes, oh my God, this is amazing. Now I can do anything. I look at it and think, well, if it was so fucking good, why does it need the plugins? Um, and isn't this just basically you me using Alexa to talk to um, booking.com as built in 1998? Like if this is, thing is absolutely fucking amazing and changes the world, how is it that's using a web 1.0 API to talk to a web 1.1 company to answer this question? Well, I could just go to booking.com and do that. Um, and now it's now all you're doing is giving me a natural language front end to a web 1.1 web 1.0 company, which they could do. Now, Auto GPT, in a sense, isn't a way of solving that, which is no, it's not one plugin. It's it can chain together 15 of them and actually solve the problem. Whether it can do that or not, I think we don't think it seems more like theoretical than real at the moment. Then one of the things I've talked about as well is the sense of UI. I I, I think we will move move on from command line, and I think we will have a better sense of what the right UI is for some of these things and the right way of presenting them will look like. You know, you have this kind of, you know, there's this phrase prompt engineering. 
So it's natural language, but prompt engine, that is it, which is it? If this is natural language, why do we have prompt engineers? Because of course it's not. You know, if I actually, and if I actually want to describe a piece of enterprise software, I don't think I could do that in 500 words. What is it? What do you, what are I actually going to do? I'm going to paste in a 500 page PDF into chat GPT and press go. And then says, great. Okay. So what do you want to do? Like, I'm not sure how that's, how that's how it works. So there's a lot of like a lot of hand waving, which I'm guilty of at the moment as well. And there's a lot of sort of, how do we get from this breakthrough in principle to 10,000 products and the stack that supports that it's like kind of look like like it's a bad analogy but it's like looking at multi-touch and going okay what is this what's this for how do you be, how do you use this i think radical uncertainty is a is a idea that we can all uh re resonate with as we try to make sense of what's what's happening uh but uh, if you're listening to this you're you're likely a student of of technology and uh as a student of technology uh benedict evans newsletter and podcast is a is a must uh so uh, Benedict, we're, we're grateful for you for spending some time sharing some of uh, your, your learnings and ideas with us and uh, look forward to uh, continuing the, to follow along your, your writing and podcast and uh, continue the conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Upstream with Eric Tornberg is a show from Turpentine, the podcast network behind Moment of Zen and Cognitive Revolution. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to 5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes from founders can be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering upstream listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash upstream and use code upstream to get your $1,000 credit. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 